Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am so thrilled to announce a rare, in-depth interview with one of the most influential minds in the theater industry, Jesse Green. Jesse Green, as many of you know, is the chief theater critic for the New York Times and the author of the books Shy, the Memoirs of Mary Rogers, and The Velveteen Father. He also worked on Broadway on A Doll's Life, Sunday in the Park with George, and more, and has written for publications including New York Magazine and Vulture. And now, without further ado, here's Jesse Green. And so I'd love to start by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? like everyone else, by seeing it and being part of it. I, of course, was in all the school shows. Uh, I went to an arts camp and did a lot of theater there. My parents took me to a fair amount of theater in Philadelphia, where I grew up. And then we would take trips to New York City to see uh, mostly Broadway shows, uh, although pretty good ones. Uh, This was during the 70s. And so I saw a lot of the great Sondheim works at that time and also a lot of uh, plays that were, you know, my parents' favorite difficult uh, sort of adult plays. And so that's what they took us to. So that's that's how it started. And in high school, I directed some plays at school and I thought I would, I thought I would probably go into the theater as a director. That was, that was the plan when I went to college. And what made you sort of change your mind? Was it your experience at college or or afterwards? No, college was a great theatrical experience. Uh, I directed a lot, got a lot of uh, good feedback, and uh, then came to New York on a high, thinking, okay, well, this is pretty easy. <laughs> uh, and then learned that, no, college is not like the world. And um, it was not easy. And I didn't like what I saw as the path that people needed to take in order to become a director. Um, I was too much of a, I I just, I guess I had a little too much sense of my own abilities to do something else than get coffee for people. And, you know, terrible stories you'd hear about people being told to pick up and count the number of dead flies in a rehearsal room and things like that. And and, uh, I did work as an apprentice to Hal Prince uh, for a while on a show, and I uh, he was he was great. He was not in any way abusive like other directors I encountered, but I kind of saw how impossible it was to get from where I was as a twenty-two year old to a place where I could actually make things that felt good to me. And I, uh, by that point, had been writing for my whole life. Also, that had been another interest, and so I decided I would focus more on the writing. Right. And what show was it that you worked with Hal Prince on? And- <laughs> <laughs> Alas, 
it, it, it wasn't like merrily we roll along <laughs> our follies, you know, the ones ones that people would love to get a, read a book about. Um, it was a show called A Doll's Life. Uh, have you heard of it? Yes, yes, I have by Comden and Greenan. Yes, it was Comden and Greenan. Larry Grossman wrote the music, and it this was this purported to be a a musical telling the story of what happened to Nora from a doll's house after she, at the end of that play by Ibsen, famously slams the door on her home life and goes off on her own. And unlike the sequel we much later got, the brilliant sequel we recently got by Lucas Nath on Broadway, this one was kind of ridiculous. Uh, I mean, she, I don't know, she worked in a herring factory and she became a courtesan and a parfumier and I don't know, it was silly, beautiful score and a fascinating experience to watch a monumental flop uh, become that way from the same kind of creative minds and the same methods uh, that a great hit might have come from and watch how people had no idea. I mean, I had an idea, all of us, all the, there were several apprentices and we would just go like, what's <laughs> happening here, what? <laughs> But no one else seemed to know because of this thing that happens in a production where, you know, everybody gets wrapped up in the same, uh, the same psychotic need to not see reality. Um, so so that, that was what that show was. But I, the good side of that was that uh, as a result of working with Hal, I was asked by Paul Gemignani, the music director of that show, and of course, a well-known uh, music director on many shows uh, to work on the music side. I had a background in music also. And uh, that started a, a mini career for about seven, eight years where I worked on Broadway musicals, it, coordinating the music, working with the copyists and that sort of thing and going on the road with some shows. And that was an incredible education as well. But again, after a number of years of doing that, I thought, what am I, this is not what I, want to be doing for the rest of my life it's right. incredible and interesting but I had to stop um or else I would still be doing it and, <laughs> and that's when I turned my attention to fully to my writing right and do you feel that you developed during that period a sort of critic sensibility of what was working and what wasn't and Yes, although I didn't know it at the time. I, I mean, listen, I, I was always kind of a judgy person. <laughs> um, as, a, as a kid, my parents said if you know that I would probably wind up being a judge. Um, but that may have been just a disguise for their wish that I would go to law school. But you know, as as all families like mine wanted their kids to go to law school. But um, you know, I I had a very quick eye and ear for noticing things and figuring out what I thought worked and didn't work. And that's why I'd wanted to be a director. And so, yes, it was incredibly informative to, especially to work on an enormous flop. Um, and then followed often alternately by enormous successes and other flops and things that were both at once. Like I didn't work directly on Merrily We Roll Along, but I, worked in the copyist's office on it. So I, you know, I, I was seeing the music come in and I was like, oh my God, this has got to be a huge hit. The music is unbelievable. You know, just looking at it in manuscript and, you know, then seeing it and seeing the difference 
between that. The, the, these were extremely instructive. And then also going on the road with shows, seeing how the directors worked day by day to improve uh, what was up on stage, often improving it quite a bit, uh, if not enough, and other times making it worse. So all of that was a great education. I did not know in any way, I had no intention of being a critic. So it never occurred to me that it would be useful to me in that way. Um, but it was fun and it was useful to me just as someone thinking about art. Right. And did you ever give suggestions when you were in that role to Paul Gimignani, say, or Hal Prince or people like that? Or I mistakenly did at one <laughs> point. <laughs> Uh, I, I was sort of boxed into a weird situation where one collaborator was not feeling good about the situation and was asking for my opinion. And I was like, oh, no, I really shouldn't. And I kind of eventually felt pressed into doing it and then immediately got in trouble. Um, uh, Hal Prince handled it really well. He took me and another apprentice into a smaller office off the rehearsal room this was at 890 Broadway, the famous Michael Bennett Studios. Uh, and uh, he said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn around and not look at either one of you because I don't want anyone to feel bad, but it's come to my attention, blah, 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 blah. And after a while I said, um, Hal, I think we both know it's me because <laughs> it's not him. So what are the options here? Anyway, he was great. And I learned to keep my mouth shut uh, you, you know, pretty much after that. But on the other hand, from the position I was in a little bit further along in the process where I was actually working on coordinating the music and uh, you know, uh, writing vocal arrangements of this or that or taking uh, key changes and putting them into uh, manuscript in those days, this, there was no computerized music notation. This was all done by hand. And um, you, you begin to get a bit of respect for that as a craft. And, People do ask your opinion in a limited way about musical things, and, and I felt free to do that. Um, uh, the problem was that it just, it wasn't something that was going to take me where I thought I had intended to go. And uh, it was too much fun. And it was uh, moderately lucrative, at least for a young person at the time when New York was still affordable. Uh, so I just had to cut cut it out cold turkey, which I did in in the late 80s. Right. And being on that musical side of things, were there sort of cut songs from any of these shows that you grew to love or to appreciate? Or Sure, there were, at least with A Doll's Life, it was more likely that the cut songs were the most embarrassing ones. <laughs> um, I mean, Hal eventually told me uh, that... I shouldn't, he said something like, I shouldn't think that he doesn't know what's wrong with the show just because he couldn't fix it. Um, and that there were things that he did acknowledging to himself the problems with the writing that were the only solutions he could come up with. I had wondered at one point, why was he having singers sing upstage for certain numbers? And I, I now understood from him that, that was because the lyrics were so mortifying. <laughs> the music was beautiful. So he wanted, you know, we could hear this, the notes, but we couldn't really make out the words. Um, not, this is not against 
Comden and Green, who were terrific at what they did best, but this was not a really good match for their sensibilities. And, um, and you know, <laughs> it's just uh, bad stuff. So I, I grew uh, to have some affection for the bad songs that were cut um, because, the, you know, they were sweet. Those people were very nice, and I, I like that. But later on... Um, you know, I, I worked on the national tour pre-Broadway of Zorba. This was the revival starring Anthony Quinn. Well, th there weren't really cut songs. There were additional songs that were put in or, you know, since the original production starring Herschel Bernardi. Um, and I love that stuff. And I uh, I was very attached to that score. I think it's a beautiful score. And getting to know John Kander was uh, a joy and a privilege. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, like like everybody who's been around musical theater, you kind of get uh, a mania about cut songs and stuff like that. I, I did work on the copying of Sunday in the Park with George. And so there was a lot of material changed in that. And I still have the manus the the uh, our copied out manuscript somewhere. I should have uh -huh. a look. And so being a critic, you, of course, have to appreciate all different styles of music on Broadway and things like that. But do you feel that there's a genre, even within theater music, that you enjoy most in terms of what you listen to in your free time? Things like well, that. Well, huh, that's an interesting question. And I'm not sure I completely agree with the premise that as a critic, I have to enjoy all sorts of music. <laughs> I think I have to enjoy what I enjoy. Uh, my job as a critic is I'm not a cheerleader for Broadway. I'm not a, I'm not a part of the marketing team that the producer hires. I, my job is basically to have my opinions and to write as well as I can about them and let people disagree. But I hope they can disagree in a way that where they, it helps them understand what their opinion is, or they know that I don't like jukebox musicals generally, for instance, which I certainly do not. Um, so they, if they know, if they've read a few of my reviews, they'll know that and they know how to take what I say in the next one. But to, to um, pretend to like formats, musical styles that I don't, I think would actually be a disservice to readers and it would also be fundamentally dishonest, which I try not to be. That said, you're the positive side of the question, are there are there genres and styles that I like? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Sondheim baby. You know, I, I grew up with that. And of course, all the great, golden age material before him that he was altering tremendously it's possible to like to love things that are really uh contrasting and, and in a way are in arguments with each other the way Sondheim is in argument with Rodgers and Hammerstein as an example and yet you can love both of them um and some of the post-Sondheim stuff you know I think I most enjoy listening to either songs that are written in any style with incredible craft. This is the big thing for me. I really, I have trouble getting my ear around things that are sloppily written. And I, I, I that doesn't mean that they are ineffective in the theater. It doesn't, you don't need a perfect rhyme every time, but my ear notices it. And I am always forced to think, why did they, choose not to use a perfect rhyme or to try to use a perfect rhyme. What is it that they're trying to say by not doing that? And I fairly often conclude that they just don't know how to do it. Um, uh, on the other hand, when a Lin-Manuel Miranda uses slant rhymes and imperfect rhymes and all those things, 
it's not because he doesn't know how to do the other kind. It's because he's being expressive in a particular way, and that's great. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the music I listened to from the last season, for instance, the one I'm listening to most is Kimberly Akimbo. So that, that could give you an idea of, of where my, and, and yet on the other hand, some like it hot. So uh, that's my range, you know, the, the kind of grand old Broadway sound uh, of which some like it hot represents, a, you know, a, a real beautiful return. Um, and the continued line, the Sondheim line, moving forward into today, as it gets more and more internal, and um, and uh, uh, further and further away from traditional song structure, which I, I enjoy. I love Janine Tesori's work. Oh yes, and then to um to go back just a little bit, I'd love to ask how the inspiration for your book Oh Beautiful came in. Oh beautiful. Really? Yeah. Want to ask about that. Uh, wow. I, well, that was a long time ago. Let's see. <laughs> I guess that's what I started writing when I left the theater, when I stopped working on musicals. Uh, and it does somewhat take place in the theater. The main character is a sort of a junior set designer on a show that has some correlation to a, a, a doll's life. Um, I mean, not the plot. It's called Jet Set. <laughs> But uh, there's a character from the show who is based on one of the lead actors in in the musical. Um, but uh, let's see. Well, I think that's his fairly standard first novel. It's uh, what they call a building's roman, uh, you know, the a novel of the youth and growth of a person. Uh, uh, in this case, it's also a kind of a coming out novel as the main character is gay and is... Uh, but not the kind of gay person who had been written about a lot in novels at the time, because he's from a, I mean, he's very repressed and he's a Republican and he's, you know, sort of hates what he sees of gayness in the world. He doesn't want to be associated with it. And yet he is who he is. And so that's his journey. It was not my journey. It was totally not right. autobiographical in that sense, but I was interested in that sort of person. Um, so uh, I guess it came about because I, uh, had been writing short stories uh, early on after I left the theater. And one of them that just began to feel real to me involved that character. And I developed it into a book. And during this period when you were writing stories and fiction that sometimes had less to do with theater, did you still go to see the theater a lot? And Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the way that a lot of us do in, right. in when we're in our 20s and early 30s. I mean, I couldn't afford to go to a lot, but I knew by that point, you know, many, many people in the theater and you know how somebody has extra tickets for this or I got to a TKTS, do you want to come tonight? I'm, you know, it's getting a call at 6.30 for a show that night at eight. Um, so I would manage to see a fair amount uh, even when I was making very little money after I stopped working on the music side of Broadway shows and before I you know began to be able to make a career off of my writing I don't know how it happened I don't do people can people still see a ton if they want to without uh, having a lot of money I think it would be hard and I mean I guess TDF would be one of the few ways to do it but even yeah. that not a lot of Broadway is on there usually. yeah I think I think the key for me was still knowing a lot of actors 
And, uh, you know, somehow they're papering this show or they have house seats for that their parents weren't able to come for, whatever. Somehow I got to see a lot of stuff, not as much I would, as I would have liked, but uh, it, it, I never ruled out that I would somehow participate in the theater again. I just knew it would be in a different way. And, right. and as I began to get a foothold into journalism, that's one of the things that happened is that people asked me to write about the theater, not as a critic, but as a uh, feature writer, a profiler, and that sort of thing. And that was always part of the mix of my journalism as it started, because I did have that background. And uh, when I wrote about those things, I guess editors felt I knew what I was talking about. And you wrote, of course, this book about fatherhood and all that called The Velveteen Father. And I'd be curious to ask, what has it been like to sort of balance fatherhood with life as a critic? And Well, I was never a critic during the time that my kids were young. You have, to, uh, I mean, when you read a book, if you've read it, um, or if you just know about it, you would think that my children exist at a permanent state of being five years old and three years old. <laughs> Um, but that was more than 20 years ago. So they're now in their late 20s. So now it's, you know, uh, the, the, the only interaction between those roles of father and critic is that occasionally one of them says, oh, can you get me tickets to, <laughs> to such and such? And I'll say, well, I have to buy them. I'm, I can't get them free, but I'm happy to buy them for you. So it, like that. But um, during the time that they were young, I was doing non-critical journalism. I was writing features, often about the theater. So I was around the theater a fair amount. But I, also a lot of them were, a lot of what I wrote were totally, what I call the tear beat. That's was my name for it. Like other people are on the, the I don't know, the, the, the Washington, the Congress beat or the police beat or the city hall beat. My beat was like wherever wherever there was a mother crying, <laughs> an editor sent me to interview her. So I did a lot of really difficult stuff, you know, uh, mothers whose sons died of AIDS or parents of people killed in the 9-11 you know, tragedies. Um, it just seemed people, editors seemed to think I had a capacity to handle that level of sadness and to express it in a in a way that readers could understand and care about it kind of took its toll um and it was very strange to be going from that to family life you know i would come back from attending a trial in japan about a a guy who murdered his gay shipmate for instance and then you know there are my five and three year old little kids and my right. partner, then partner, now husband. Um, and uh, it was, um, uh, you know, I, I suppose it was like what most people uh, throughout history have had to do. It was just odd for me to, to put their business life behind them and attend to their family life. Luckily, I wasn't a single parent, which I think would be extremely difficult. Right. Uh, and luckily, also, my kids were really pretty easy i mean we didn't i mean they slept well and they ate well and they didn't you know they, they they weren't very difficult to have a good time with 
and they love the theater. Ah. So there's one thing. I wasn't a critic yet, but I, you know, I was going to a lot of theater because of the profiles and the other journalism I was writing that touched on theater. And I would fairly often get them tickets for something I thought was appropriate. For instance, taking them to see Hairspray blew their minds. Ah. You know, and then uh, I remember my older boy, then, who was then a teenager, falling in love with Karen Olivo in, uh, in the Heights, oh. you know, things like that. And do you find that having dealt with all of this real life tragedy and witnessing it firsthand and things before you were a theater critic has made you sort of more or less inured to seeing theatrical representations of tragedy and things that's like that? Interesting. Uh, I think that's probably true. I, I think I, I am able to sit through very sad work and appreciate it. Um, but I possibly you might also think this, I must have had the same predisposition to that kind of work, both in what I would write about and in what I would appreciate watching. Right. Um, what I don't like, or I shouldn't say I don't like, I what I have trouble tolerating in both situations is um, mayhem. That is to say, you know, uh, gratuitous violence or even non-gratuitous violence. I have difficulty with. I don't. I don't really like thrillers. Um, th th those things just don't ha have much interest for me. But also, I recognize that there's something in me that resists them. So I try to be careful when I'm covering work like that to be aware of my, uh, I, I don't want to, well, I guess they're prejudices in a way, they're emotional prejudices, but they're, they're things that I bring with me into the theater that I need to try to put aside. Um, right. Nevertheless, it's hard to review a play when your eyes are closed, as, <laughs> you know, in a, in a particularly violent play, I, I really do have difficulty. Right. And has there ever been a play that you've elected not to see because of something like that you felt in? Well, there's plays I certainly wish I had elected. <laughs> there was a play called Gloria at the Vineyard uh, by Brandon Jacobs Jen Jenkins and um, mostly got excellent reviews or good reviews. It was about uh, an incident of uh, terrible office violence. You know, one of those stories of like the odd co-worker who goes crazy and shoots everyone. And it was staged, I guess you could say brilliantly, to have its effect. And I was just not having that. I was like, I was infuriated that that would have been pushed into my eyes without my permission. Right. Um, and I wrote a very negative review as a result. And I, I now wonder, maybe I should not have written a review at all of a show like that. Uh, but on the other hand, there are a lot of people who feel as I do. And I think other people reading what I write might be able to judge for themselves that, well, oh, that's his problem. That wouldn't be my problem. And right. So I, I don't know. I, I, this is a very loaded issue right now. There's a lot of thinking everyone is doing, rightly so, about who should be reviewing what based on their own characteristics, their own uh, life history uh and, and identity uh in comparison with the identity uh of the playwright and the characters in the play and uh that's a tr very tricky subject that's worth thinking about uh my i tend to feel not that you asked but i tend to feel that everybody should 
be able to write about everything. I mean, I, I, that is a principle I have. Um, however, it is also the case that some people probably can write better about certain things than other people because of things they know or have experienced for themselves. And so uh, at the times we go back and forth about that and make a case by case decision. Right. We, don't, we don't want to be told, you know, this play is by a uh, transgender uh, writer and they request uh, an author, a critic who is transgender or something. You know, we get a lot of requests like that and we we don't go along with them. However, we do have internal discussions about, well, who would be best for this? Maybe this is something that I just wouldn't bring a lot of knowledge to. And I, I think that's legitimate, but you, finding the line is difficult. And how much sort of research do you do before you go into a play or musical, if, if any? Well, it depends, um, particularly with a new work. I try to go in as blank as possible. I would like to give the authors the opportunity to have the effect on me that they want to have. And if I've read too much about it or read the script or listened to the music or whatever, I, I feel like I'm not doing that. And I'm also going in better prepared than a, an ordinary audience member would. Um, so I, I try not to. However, immediately upon seeing something, I then, you know, given uh, an adequate amount of time, which can be a problem because nowadays in particular, the uh, press offices are providing, are, are leaving less and less time between press performances and opening night. So it's harder to do this, but I cram in as much reading as I can in between. So I always, as I never read a script of a new play before I see it, I always read a script of a new play immediately after seeing it. I, because by then, okay, I've let the author and the director and the production have its way with me. Now I want to see if I can understand more clearly what the author had in mind by, by reading the actual words on a page. And likewise, if it's a musical, if I can get a hold of, uh, you know, some of the songs, or if there is a cast album or just some preview stuff that, that they'll send me, I'll, I will at that point listen to that stuff. If if the composer will send me the actual uh, notated music, I will ask to see that uh, because I enjoy it so much and I get a lot out of it. I'll do as much as I can at that time, but I usually don't, as I say, I have less and less time. It used to be I, I would typically have five days between seeing a show and the time the review would have to be published. Now it's, you know, it can be three, two, or even one. Uh, and I know there was some sort of dispute sparked by the Music Man on the front page, which were both shows that had the critics come on opening night. And what was what were those experiences like for you reviewing those shows? Uh, well, with the front page, I was already, I was, I had started recently being a critic because I've not been a critic that long. I, my first reviews were uh, at Vulture for uh, New York Magazine, uh, Vulture being the website for, for the cultural website for New York Magazine. Uh, I think I started briefly in 2013 uh, because the uh, critic, the uh, regular critic was going on paternity leave. And uh, so I took over for him for a, a few months and then he came back. Uh, but then six months later, he decided uh, that he wanted to work on shows 
of his own, and it, he couldn't really be a critic under those circumstances. And that was Scott Brown, who was the co-book writer for Beetlejuice. Uh -huh. um, so he did well. Uh, but it was at that point only, it was 2014, that, that I started writing criticism regularly. So this was soon after that. Sorry for all the background. And, oh you know, I found it amusing. Scott Rudin was the producer. He was always doing things to jerk around the critics and the everybody. But, you know, he was the high price spread. He, he really was the one who was putting on good work. So you, you kind of had to go with it. And so I went with it and it was, you know, they were trying to package it as, oh, it'll be fun. It'll be like the old days, <laughs> you know, like Walter Kerr going to opening night and filing his review. And yeah, but but Walter Kerr had nine secretaries, you know, <laughs> you know and a rewrite person. And it's, it is, it just isn't the same, but I did it. I was satisfied with it. By the time the music man came around, uh, which had also it was supposed to be uh, a Scott Rudin show, but by then he had been uh, deported or whatever happened to him. Anyway, uh, he uh, the show announced that they would only have press on opening night, and that was not... The Times tries to go along with the gentleman's agreement with the press offices and the productions about observing their embargoes, and but ultimately we're a newspaper. We're not bound to any such agreement. And in that case, the news judgment came down that no, we're, that mean, that would mean that we would, the review would come up a day or two days after the show opened. We serve readers to, to a great extent and that would not serve them. So the, the, there was quite a lot of, you know, high level <laughs> meetings about this. And we decided that uh, I would go see it early. I would buy my own ticket and uh, see it early and then write a draft, but then go to opening night and make sure that what I had seen and written was still the case huh. by opening night. And only after seeing it, could I call them, call my editors and say, okay, go ahead and publish. Or if, as it happened, I didn't need to change anything because the, the show had been frozen. So <laughs> even though they said it wasn't, but it, it was, it was identical. Um, I, the only difference is that I saw it from when I went semi-disguised um, to see it a few days early, I sat in the mezzanine as opposed to the orchestra, which is where I saw it from opening. So uh, anyway, I think it's uh, I, I think it's a trick. I don't like it. However, since COVID, it has sometimes been unavoidable because there's so many cast illnesses. A show I was supposed to see last night had to cancel press performances because both the, the actor playing a lead role and that actor's understudy, they shared a dressing room. So wow. they both got COVID. Um, so this is not gone yet. And I, I try to be really flexible under those circumstances. And even though it's, it's something of a hardship, I don't like writing overnight Right. Walter Turway without, even if I had the secretaries, I just, I like to think more. You know, those, those authors that everyone exclaims over, if you actually read what they wrote, they sounded like things that were written that night. Right. They're very much, she's back in town and everyone's, you know, uh, you know, bowing down to the great, you know, they're very, 
uh, thin, honestly. They're stylishly written, uh, but there's no anal there's very little analysis in a lot of those daily reviews. And we, you know, all of us writing criticism today, and there are very few of us, but those of us doing it are writing pretty at a pretty high level of analysis, uh, you know, politically and dramatically and all of those sorts of things that was not, was more the function of a Sunday, what they used to call a Sunday critic in the old days, somebody who had the four days or a week even before having to file copy. And how long do you feel that a review should generally be? And have you ever made sort of exceptions in terms of something you didn't have a lot to say about or more than the word limit to say about? Well, of course, uh, you know, that's not just my decision. That's right. my editors. And also to the extent that a print newspaper still exists. I mean, I can write as long as I like for online publication although we try not to, but in particular, because that same work is going to go into the print paper and I cannot write as long as I want for the print paper. And unless I intend to have half the review cut to fit into a normal print space, I had better write it to a length that will be acceptable to the print people. So um, all that said, I, I'm, I, at the times my reviews tend to be 1100 words. Um, if if a show just isn't interesting enough to carry 1,100 words, there's not enough to discuss, or I, it was just so miserable that I don't want to pile on too much, I'll cut it down to 850, 900. Um, we we run shorter reviews than that, of course, but I I don't write shorter than that unless it's a capsule review. Um, right. I have absolutely gone longer. There have been really big show shows that had needed a lot of context or were so, you know, important in the broad way, uh, you know, ecology that we knew readers would want to deeper read, um, you know, ranging from the Julius Caesar at, in Central Park at Shakespeare in the Park, which was national news, to, um, you know, when Leah Michelle took over in Funny Girl, which is not, you know, which was also in its own way national news. <laughs> But, you know, the, so in stories like that, reviews like that, I'm, if depending on the day and what else is happening uh, and how much room there is in the print paper, I might go to 1400. But I I don't think I've ever gone longer than that at the times, to my knowledge, unless it was a notebook, what we call a notebook, which is considering more than one show. And you wrote? a very interesting article recently about shows that sort of have their eye on Broadway or are maybe coming. And in your tenure as both a critic and just sort of a cover of theater and profile and all that, has there been a show that's been either announced or you've just heard might be coming that didn't, that you were especially sort of disappointed about? Or Oh, many. <laughs> I mean, there, I keep a list. I, if you're, if it's that story that I'm, that you're referring to with about my spreadsheet, with the hundred, I mean some. I mean partly I keep that spreadsheet, which is a listing <clears throat> of every show I hear about that says it's aiming for New York. I mean anybody can say anything, <laughs> but I, I put them down, and I, partly I do it for amusement because some of them are so insane, <laughs> obviously never going to make it. But there are other shows that have been on the list for a long time that you like, like, oh, where is that? I want to see that show. Um, 
one of them that I, I you know that is now finally happening as an example is the days of wine and roses uh-huh. which we're playing at the atlantic this summer which is the new show by craig lucas and adam gettle of the light in the piazza and uh based on <clears throat> the jack lemon lee remick movie and i you know um i i think i can say that i've been looking forward to that for years in part because I will not be reviewing it. Uh, I can't review it um, because as, as we may discuss, I've written this book about Mary Rogers right. Gettle, who is the mother of Adam Gettle. And it just would present too much of an, an appearance of a possible conflict of interest if I were to review one of her son's shows. Right. And so before we do talk about the Mary Rogers book, I'd love to ask you a few more questions about profiling when you were doing that and all that. So was it usually that you would choose someone to profile or that your editor would give you a list of options or just assign something or how would that usually go? Uh, 50-50, I I guess. I mean, for a long time, I was freelance. So, I mean, I was constantly pitching stories here or there. Um, I, I, I never had a salary job until I started as a critic, you know, in that 2014. I mean, I was always freelance for my entire career before that. And if you've done freelance, if one has done freelance work, you know that a large part of it is putting ideas before editors and hoping that some of them will catch. But I did I did get to be known as someone who did this sort of work. And so then they would start to call me as well. And then when I started writing heavily for the Times, still as a freelancer, in about 2004, for the Times Magazine, and then later for Arts and Leisure for uh, a number of years until I went to New York Magazine, uh, then it would be a collaboration. I would make lists and lists of stories, profiles, not only profiles, but you know, uh, reported pieces about interesting topics in theater. And so would they. And we would get together and meet and see which ones seemed ripest and and of most interest. And I love that because I don't like having to come up with stories all by myself. I, I prefer working with an editor on that sort of thing. And boy, did I do a wide range of exciting things, particularly for arts and leisure starting around 2004, I guess. Oh, yeah. And how long do you feel that you need to spend with someone in order to write a sort of accurate, comprehensive profile? My immediate response will be more than their publicist wants to give (laughs) me. Luckily, if writing for the Times or New York Magazine, you know, or if or, or the New Yorker or other, you know, uh, respected outlets like that, they pretty much know they can't give you you know forty minutes in a hotel room. Right. Um, I like to have. I mean, this is really inside baseball. I don't know how interesting it is to anyone, but I liked to make sure that I had at least three different environments and three different occasions. Um, you know, one of them might be a, a rehearsal where I'm seeing the person work with the director on the scene. One of them might be um, at their home with their family to get that side of it. One of them might be in a formal interview in a, you know, in a non-space like uh, an agent's office. Um, or, uh, uh, 
going out for coffee, or in the case of Audrey McDonald, who was wonderfully available, made herself wonderfully available, uh, she allowed me, it occurred to me that I would love to hear her go to her vo voice lesson. Um, the idea that Audrey McDonald has to go to voice <laughs> lessons is shocking, but that's how she keeps her voice the way it is. And that was one of the, I mean, both as a scene for a piece, but just as a human life experience. That was one of the great moments of my life was being uh -huh. in a tiny little studio with her and her voice teacher and a piano and hearing her sing scales. Wow. <laughs> God, it was so beautiful. Um, you know, and so, so a, really a pretty goodly amount of time, but particularly time in different formats. So it wasn't always interview. I, I really like to watch the person do their work and do other things that they do in their lives so that I can get a more rounded picture. So I guess I, in all, maybe I would be spending eight hours, 10 hours with somebody sometimes. Right. And I'm not sure if you'd want to answer this question, but has there ever been a profile that has been canceled midway or anything like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> This is Scott Rudin again. Um, this was um, Bette Midler with Hello, Dolly. Uh, we, this, I was still at New York Magazine and uh, there had been an agreement and then there was upset about what the, who was gonna be the photographer and what the image was gonna look like, but we got it settled. And it was, it was finally all pinned down and I was supposed to meet Bette Midler at Oh, I don't know. It was, uh, uh, I forget what restaurant. I don't think it wasn't Sardi's, but uh, someplace. I can't remember now. And I was supposed to meet her. Let's say it was at 6.30 p.m. for the first discussion, which would be an hour long or hour and a half over dinner. And I guess about three minutes before I was going for the subway, I got a call that it was canceled. Uh -huh. And I said, you mean postponed? Is she unavailable? No, the whole cancel. We're not doing it. And I never got an adequate explanation of why. But, the, you know, when you, when you play with wolves, you have to expect to get bit. Right. I don't mean Bette Midler. <laughs> I doubt she even knew. I mean, the, you know, or if she, you know, whatever. Probably somebody was protecting her energy levels. She needed more rest. Whatever it was. It's fine, it's, but it is very disappointing when it's both a big professional situation and, as I imagined, a big, uh, you know, personal high for me right. uh, had I gotten to have dinner with Ben Midler. On the other hand, I, I was then able to review the show, which was also, which I might not have been able to do if I'd, you know, spent time with her beforehand. Right. And I would like to ask about your famous Arthur Lawrence profile, which is wonderful, I think, in the process of writing that. Uh, yeah, so this was at New York Magazine. Um, I was doing a, you know, inadvertently, I had fallen into doing a series of profiles of, you know, what I thought of as, you know, difficult older Jewish men. <laughs> and we just... And somewhere along the line, somebody we started to make, or I made a, just a list of who who were the other names that belong on such a list, who were around, <laughs> and uh, 
Arthur was on the list. And I get, I don't, I don't remember where that came from originally, but you know, it made perfect sense. I had done so many of the people in, I had written about so many of the people in his circle. I had interviewed him previously, briefly, uh, for um, a, a different piece uh, about Patti Lapone when she was doing Gypsy. And, um, and so that was a profile of Patti Lapone, but Arthur came into it, of course. So, yeah, so, so I went into it, I, honestly, I went into it as I do any other profile. I, I really didn't have an agenda. I had ideas about how I thought he might be placed uh, in the sort of um, history of theater. And, but I wasn't wedded to those ideas and I was ready to be disproved. I, of course, knew I had to deal with the fact that he was, you know, a constant subject of excited conversation for his <laughs> supposed nastiness. He'd been nice to me when I met him, but that means nothing. Right. Um, but I was, I knew I was going to have to face him head on about that and see for myself. But I didn't go in having decided. But I came out decided. <laughs> he gave me a good amount of time. He was a, a very good interview. That is to say, he, you know, he speaks, he knows how to say things that will read well in print. He's, he's, he wants to be quoted. Right. That's great. Um, but I didn't like him. I felt that he was self-serving and also kind of lying. Um, he hid things from me, even when I asked him directly. It just wasn't which, you know, that's fine, but it's also fine for me to write about that. Anyway, I, I say this somewhat defensively because the piece has been construed as a total hatchet job. Um, and maybe it is, but it was the truth of what I witnessed. And no one has ever questioned the accuracy of anything I said in it, not even him. He was just offended and felt betrayed that someone he thought for what reason I don't know, be coming in to do a, you know, a fawning and loving profile, wrote a kind of difficult and harsh profile, uh, and I I don't regret it, and I I also have to say the title, which came from my editor at the time, is possibly the best title I ever had on a profile. It is, yeah, it is a great title. It, the title was um, "When You're a Shark, You're a Shark All the Way." Yeah, and I have to say, for as much as that piece got me into some, I don't know, disrepute among certain people, it got me into great repute among other people, <laughs> <laughs> including people I cared a lot more about, like Sondheim right. and and, uh, and Mary Rogers. And was there ever anyone who, in either direction, was sort of totally different than what you thought they would be like? I, I did find... Audrey McDonald, whom I actually have interviewed several times, but there was the one very big profile for New York Magazine, and many years earlier for the Times Magazine, early in her career, I had interviewed her. Um, I was surprised, uh, I, this is almost a cliche, but at how doubtful she was of her own abilities. Uh. Um, and I, I knew it not to be an act because going to that uh, um, 
a vocal lesson that she took. It was just like, she was producing the most beautiful sounds I'd ever heard in my life, as I said, just doing scales, getting higher and higher. And I was like being blown against the wall. Um, and she was so critical of herself. And uh, it's not that I don't understand that because a lot of great artists are highly critical of themselves. That's part of how they motivate themselves to keep going and keep improving. But the the disjuncture between how she spoke of of her abilities and gifts and what I and the teacher were hearing was enormous. Mm -hmm. uh, I keep thinking about that. And it wasn't only in that environment. I, I was very moved by her and uh, by the way, how serious, how fundamentally extremely serious she is. Um, so that, that was one, I guess I wasn't so surprised that Patti LuPone was wild. <laughs> I mean, like really hilariously crazy, wild, a little scary. Um, you know, Sondheim was always pretty good with me. I didn't get a lot of the, uh, you know, upset, infuriated side of him that pretty much everyone has gotten stung with at some point. I got a little bit. Um, no, so he wasn't uh, that much of a surprise. No, I... I can't think of any off the top of my head. And I actually would be curious to ask, having done all these profiles and sort of built those relationships, what was it like when you then became a critic and sort of knew some of those people so well from that? And Yeah, well, it kind of ended any, I mean, for one thing, you don't really become these people's friends. It's very rare. Well, right, right. Um, although I think in many cases, you become uh, collegial, collegial like if I would see them at a restaurant or something you would say hello I mean it was generally very friendly not with Arthur Lawrence um and some you know some people were very kind to uh congratulate me when I got the job and but sort of understood that at that point any casual kind of interaction that we might have had in the past an email now and then or whatever you know pretty much stopped and um and that was sad for me although necessary i started in this business because i loved the theater and i loved theater people right and i wasn't going to be performing god knows and i realized soon that i wasn't going to be directing and i didn't want to be a music coordinator or a copyist copyist forever so uh writing about people in a way where i could get to know them and it wasn't unethical to befriend them was a wonderful thing to do uh and now i've lost that i don't have that option anymore and i miss it i miss the thrill of being backstage to see a show from backstage because a friend is in it um so so and then on the other side of this though is i told you i worked for john kander i think i did that i mentioned a yeah. long time ago and i've interviewed him many times since then uh particularly right after fred ebb died or soon after fred ebb died and i wrote about you know how he was thinking about what the next part of his career would be uh on his own or or not as the case may be so uh, I saw him at a memorial service for someone else, obviously. And uh, he asked what I was up to. And I told him this was when I was starting to be a, 
critic at New York Magazine, and I mentioned that, and he said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> I said, well, why not? He said, no, it's just, please, please don't do that. We need, we don't need more critics. We need more people who know and love the theater writing about theater without being critics. Uh, he was very against it. <laughs> I said, well, I, I, you know, I'm really sorry. I need to work. <laughs> this is the offer on the table. And he said, you know, he was, he really tried to convince me not to do it. Uh-huh. This is because John Kander is the nicest person in show business. Uh-huh. Um, as everyone who's known him or worked with him will attest. Uh, and he doesn't like unniceness about anyone. And criticism is sometimes unnice. Right. And what was the process like of sort of finding your unique voice as a critic and all that in terms of some are known for being mean like John Simon and okay. others, of course, Arrington? Well, uh, the thing about John Simon as a wonderful example, I mean, of course, he was very mean, um, but he was he was mean about the wrong things often. I mean, he was quite, in my opinion, racist, misogynistic, and homophobic, as three examples. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was a teenager. Uh, for some reason, even though we grew up, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, my parents got the New Yorker and New York Magazine. I, I don't know why. I'm, I'm thrilled they did. Um, and I read John Simon all the time in New York Magazine. And I remember him writing about Barbara Streisand in something and describing her nose as bisecting the screen like a giant towering ziggurat of meat. (laughs) I just couldn't believe that somebody could write such a disgusting uh, and clearly anti-Semitic thing uh, in a national magazine. But the thing is, he wrote really well and it was hard not to read him. Interesting, I thought. (laughs) And, and, uh, I didn't, what I wanted to do was to be as sharp as that, but only about the right things, which is why I focus very strongly on the argument of the play and far less on the personal characteristics of the people involved in it. Um, I mean, of course, they talk, talk about performances, but I almost never talk about the bodies Right, people in a show. Uh, I, I didn't want to ever be perceived as being personally mean, but there's no getting around the fact that people love to read a negative review as much as they love to read a really positive review. And I just decided that I needed to have the freedom to write as strongly as I felt in either direction preferably far into either direction because it's in the middle where it becomes difficult to be interesting. Right. Um, And so one of the things I was trying to learn how to do when I was starting to write criticism was uh, to uh, express the uh, extreme feelings in a way that felt um, justified and that didn't uh, spill over into appearing to have any personal animus attached to it. Um, I didn't always succeed. I I sometimes was angry, 
and I sort of have just, you know, tried to let go of writing my writing anger per se. Right. Uh, but um, I, I that so that was one thing. The other thing was focusing on argument. As I said, this is on underneath everything else. The reason I care about theater is because it is arguing about how we should live. And it is offering us experiments in ways to live and showing us sometimes the consequences, sometimes not showing us the consequences, but um, serving a, a really important function, particularly in a time when there's uh, terrible cacophony of voices, often telling things that are untrue. Right. Um, and everyone seeming to attack everyone else's positions uh, from a very narrow uh, daises or very podiums. And I'm, a, I, I'm powerfully against that. And I try to use my critical writing to, uh, sh to understand bigger ways of thinking about the world than I as an individual necessarily uh, had before I saw this play. Um, when a play does not offer me that, that's, you know, or when I feel like it is reducing the size of the way we can look at the world, then I don't like that and I say that. But uh, I am mostly trying to tell readers, here's something that will help you understand the world. It, it, it may not teach you anything per se. It's not not all plays need to have a moral. And in fact, probably better if they don't, <laughs> most part. But um, to to allow you to safely and vicariously experiment with ways of being in our world is a, is a great thing that plays and musicals to some extent can do. Of course, pleasure is another great thing that plays and musicals, in particular musicals, can do. And I'm all for that. Um, and I've tried to find ways to express that using my musical knowledge from my background working in music without getting too technical for ordinary readers. Um, uh, and overall, the largest thing I, I would say, and this is something I say to young people who ask me about becoming critics, is the thing I really spend the most time on is writing as well as I can. What, you know whatever it is that I want to say. And of course, writing well depends on knowing what you want to say. That is the key element. <laughs> but the other uh, key element, which however you can't develop on the spot is knowing how to construct arguments out of words and sentences and paragraphs. And if you ever to watch me writing on my screen, if you were, you know, if you had one of those things where you can see my screen while I'm <laughs> writing, you would see that I am, it's all about the sentences. That's all. I, by then I'd better know what I'm thinking. That's very interesting. And then so to bring us more to the present day with coming out of the pandemic and all that, I know there were some people who were saying like, maybe people should be a little nicer, like for a while. And how do you feel about that sort of idea? Mm, well, uh, I fundamentally disagree. I, I, for one thing, it presupposes that negative criticism is unnice. Um, and I, I don't think that's really the case. I, it can be very negative. Things, there are shows that are very bad. 
Um, and it isn't unnice to describe that. It isn't personal. The people, you know, I can understand how people involved in a production might not feel that way if they're being criticized, if their work is being criticized. They are never being criticized. Right. Their work is being criticized. But I'm not writing for them. And I hold, you shouldn't probably read that if you're in a show. I, you know, I, I recognize that it's difficult not to, but that's your choice. And if you're going to read it, then, you know, you know, be responsible for your own feelings about it. Don't throw it back on me. Um, I work very hard to restrict myself to the work. So uh, in terms of COVID, yes, I will say that in the first, whatever, uh, first year or something when shows started coming back or even during the pandemic when everything was online, um, I was a little, looking back on it, I was perhaps a little easier on some of that stuff than I might normally be. I don't think it was out of like, come on, we can make it. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know that that would have done anybody any good anyway. Maybe it was, and I wasn't conscious of it. I think it was mostly because, you know, I was so, I actually was so grateful for anybody's efforts to get anything up, on, you know, that resembled the play um, online and then to get into the theater when that time came and put something out there that I actually you know, had a better time than I might have had I seen that same work at a later date or in a different format. Right. And on a more personal level, I would be curious to ask you, how do you avoid when you're seeing a play, eight different plays, I should say eight times a week for a year, things like that, how do you avoid sort of getting tired of just the practice of sitting in a theater and well, first of all, I, I never see that many. I never, even at the, you know, when I was seeing more than I am now, I, I just couldn't possibly do that. I would go crazy. I have colleagues who I think do see nearly that many. I think Helen Shaw now at The New Yorker, I mean, she used to be seeing six or seven a week. I don't know if she still is. I don't know how she does that. Um, so I, I have, you know, I, I just, except in April when the Broadway, uh, you know, uh, leaders for some reason decide they have to have every show open within a two and a half week period. And it's really insane. Uh, you know, except for that period of time, I, tr I really try and I'm able to keep it down to a more reasonable number. Um, still, you know, I'm seeing between 100 and 200 shows a year. There are people who see well more than that who are not critics. I mean, so it is it is quite doable. I never, ever feel jaded. I really, truly go to every show thinking that this is going to be fun or this is going to show me something new. And I'm, you know, even in shows that aren't great, I'm often rewarded for that. I mean, I a show doesn't have to be great to do some of what theater does right uh, it can be entertaining and stupid <laughs> it can be smart but not satisfying there are lots of in-between states and that's often plenty for me but the other thing is I've always loved going to the theater 
I've written about this. It feels like a safe place to me. Um, I almost always go with my husband, which is to say he gets first choice on my companion ticket and he's greedy. So as much as I would like to take my friend sometimes, it's very rare that I get the extra ticket uh, because he wants to go. And and it's a, a way for us to, among other things, to be together, sit next to each other, not talking, um, usually holding hands, uh, except that I need, you know, it depends on which side of whether we're on because I need my right hand for notes. And um, I have to say, there haven't been that many places in the world where I have felt safe being who I am. Uh -huh. I think a lot of theater people feel this way. And uh, I feel safe in the theater. And so I, it, that never goes away for me. Oh, yes. And that's very wonderful. And I would be curious to know, I know sometimes people say that critics or critics say that they try to avoid clapping laughing too much things like that and what's your sort of stance on that in terms of well i don't stand for standing ovations uh -huh. um that made it sound like i can't stand for that no i mean <laughs> it's fine with me if you stand up but um and it's sort of a holdover from uh, an old position that theater critics had i don't really now get it but i'm i'm glad of it because i don't I mean, it's rare that I feel like jumping up. It just seems to me to be a weird sort of reaction. But I'm, it's fine with me if other people do it. But I'm not going to do it unless I feel it. And now I'm not really ever going to do it. However, I like to see what's going on on the stage. So it's, you know, and the people around me sometimes are, who are papered to be near me, not just me, but other critics, but you can tell that they're there for the production because <laughs> they are screaming and laughing <laughs> louder than anyone else and right. whatever. Um, so then I can't see. So I've developed this thing where I sit up on the arm of the chair <laughs> in a halfway position. Um, now I always applaud, even if I didn't like a show, mm -hmm. I, I absolutely laugh as much as I feel like laughing. I would hate to suppress that. I cry if I cry. Um, I don't do a lot of screaming and leaping up, that's true. Uh, on the other hand, I powerfully feel this, and anyone who goes with me to the theater knows that I cannot tolerate any negative or really any discussion of the content of the show until we're far away. Right. Of, keep in mind that I'm seeing these shows in the last week before opening during press performances. There are family members there best friends. I don't, I'm not out to spoil their enjoyment. I mean, people think I do that later, but <laughs> in any case, I'm not out to do it in that moment. And I, I just, uh, so I have a rule that, you know, not until we're on the subway. Um, and even then I look around to see the playbills because there's always <laughs> a lot of people with playbills at the same time of night. Uh, and I want to make sure, but I tend to not talk about it at all until I get home. Um, and, and even then not much, because I, I, I've been on Broadway stages, not performing, but like during rehearsals or whatever, you can't imagine how close the audience is to the stage from their perspective and they can see everything. 
Right. They see if you've fallen asleep. <laughs> they see if you quickly take out your pen and do something. They, they know what's going on. And the idea that somebody would be up there and see me making a caddy joke to someone next to me or you know, <laughs> folding my arms and going, Hmph. I I just can't have that. Um, right. I really I really love actors. I love what they do. Uh, God help them, even when they're not great. Uh, so so that's that's my answer to that. I, I believe in everyone being allowed to have their own response, including me. Right. And have you found that there's a general trend in terms of a difference between last season when we were coming right out of the pandemic and this season? Interesting. Uh, well, for one thing, no one's wearing masks anymore. <laughs> uh, I mean, I do, uh, but um, I would say fewer than 10% of audience members are. But I don't think that's what you mean. Are you talking about the content of... Right. Well, there, there's certainly something going on. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, opaque uh, motivation behind what gets onto the Broadway stage in particular, but also off-Broadway. Um, and so a lot of it has to do with the business, like which shows opened immediately after the pandemic because they were halted before the pandemic and they needed to go the right. second they could. And which shows were kind of not yet at that point or were waiting for the first wave to go and they're now coming or they didn't want to risk opening a huge show when it was still very iffy. So we're, we're getting a, a slightly different mix now. Um, I will say that both because of the pandemic and because of, um, you know, uh, the discussions that the whole country has been having uh, about the treatment of Black Americans and Black artists that uh, there have been, you know, it's a noticeably different mix on Broadway of uh, plays by white and Black and um, not yet so many other uh, authors, but uh, the question had been, will, will they survive? I mean, Broadway is never a good bet. Um, possibly one third of Broadway shows earn back their income. It's a very, very bad business um, if you go by the odds. Uh, and, and a lot of those shows that immediate, opened immediately after the pandemic didn't succeed on, in financial terms. And it seemed to me that in a way they were maybe you know being sacrificed because uh, those were shows that, um, had been waiting not just a year but forever basically right. for us to begin to see more and more plays by uh, people who aren't white and male and straight um so that while that was great i'm not sure what the long-term meaning of it's going to be if too many of those shows fail now this fall we began to see more that were succeeding at uh, either borderline financially or truly uh, making a profit, but also getting, you know, rave reviews across the board. So we had Top Dog, Underdog, Piano Lesson, and The uh, uh, Death of a Salesman with an all-Black cast, and various 
other plays coming, Fat Ham, just like really stuff that, you know, is pretty great work. Now, I haven't seen the Broadway Fat Ham, but I've seen the show previously. So I'm I'm really hoping that this takes now because it's it's necessary and it's wonderful. Um, I know people sometimes think, well, you know, white audiences aren't going to go to shows about black life, you know, four times a season, but why not? I mean, I, I want to see everybody's life. I, I mean, not, you know, I just, that is what theater has been for me. It, it, and, and finally it's offering more of it. I really do not need to see any more plays about my demographic. And I, really, I feel that if people just calm down and give themselves a chance to try these shows, they're going to be really beautifully surprised. And so I'd love to switch a little bit to talking about your wonderful book, Shy Now. And so you talk about this a little bit in the book, but how did the inspiration for it come? Well, I had I had met Mary, which is to say Mary Rogers Gettle, uh, when I was doing a profile of Adam Gettle, her son, when he was writing uh, The Light in the Piazza, and it was in Seattle. And I spent some time with him out there. And when I got back from there, as, as I told you, I like to do a lot of different kinds of interviews I forgot to mention one of the things I like to do is also to talk to other people around the person. Right. In this case, I thought, well, I'd never met Mary and her husband, Hank, and I'd heard that they were like hilarious and wonderful. Why don't I see if they'll talk to me? And I called and they said, great. And I went over and it's described in the book, but basically I, it was the most amazing and fun and ridiculous afternoon of, of them telling me stories that they really shouldn't have been telling me and and all kinds of great stuff and you know just you know looking at her piano there with the photographs on it of all the people that one grew up you know listening to and reading about and I don't know it was it, it was a little bit of a childish dream of you know to to have stepped into that life for a moment. Okay, so that was that, did the profile, that was over. A number of years later, she was trying to write her memoir. She had been contracted by Farrar, Strauss and Giroux, the publisher to do so. She was having trouble. She went back and forth. She vacated the contract. She started the contract. She, And finally she came to me and we had become friends in the meantime, I, I, I neglected to say. And uh, she came to me and she said, what if we did this together? So the inspiration was, that this was someone I adored and I thought she had the best story that uh, the, the most amazingly wonderful rich story and she was unable to write the book right she wanted me to do it with her so what was I what was I going to do I <laughs> said yes and um that was the inspiration I you know it, it turned out rather differently than we had planned uh, because it was from the day we started with our first get together uh, where I would, you know, interviewed her basically for four hours. Um, we, it was only two and a half years or something like that till she died. Um, and I, you know, I didn't obviously know that was going to be the case. And even when I should have known that it was happening, I was not able to really take that in. So I was in some denial and she died and I had completed all the interviewing, 
but I had only, as as per our understanding of how we would do the book, I was going I was going to write it based on these hundreds and hundreds of hours of conversation. And uh, at the time of her death, I had only written ten pages, so you know it, it took a while to do the rest of it, and I had to do it without her, which was painful. Um, maybe in a way liberating too. And you mentioned having to, in a certain way, sort of imitate her cadence in, in writing it. And what was that process like of, did it come naturally having spent so many hours with her? Or? It was like, it was like using my own voice. Uh -huh. I, so, I mean, I had all of her conversation in my notes. Um, although, you know, I didn't, like there might be a sentence here and a sentence from a year later and a paragraph from six months after that, that really all belong together. I mean, I, I had to find the structure for the book and then, you know, figure out the content of every page. Right. Um, and often that content came from many different places and, uh, you know, needed to be connected uh, in a way that would sound like her voice. But also there was a lot of stuff you know, that we had sort of talked about or that I had heard about that I just had to write in her voice even though she hadn't said it um, because I had to tell the whole story. This was all, you know, she approved of this. It's not like I was uh, pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. Um, I just wasn't sure I could do it once she had died because the fail safe was always going to be that she would read whatever I wrote and she would say, that doesn't sound like me or or change this to this. And she never got to do that. Right. Uh, so, but as it turned out, I found that after spending so much time with her, I guess I had a, either absorbed her way of talking into me or I could just hear it in my ears. Um, and I, I knew how to do it. So, um, you know, I, I suppose that someone you know, maybe one of her kids, or you know, uh, would he maybe would read it and say that sentence doesn't sound quite right to me, but I uh, haven't heard so. And I was in the lucky position that Mary had elected one of her or appointed one of her cousins, Sarah Crichton, who's a book publisher and who, in fact, had signed up the book at Farrar Strauss uh, and then went to a different publishing house, but to be sort of the family representative and to read the book as it was being written and to decide alone, no one else was allowed to read it, um, whether, you know, it represented her uh, the way she would want to be represented. Right. And so, and Sarah had grown up with Mary, so she really knew. And, and once I had Sarah's approval that I had created the voice, uh, you know, or I shouldn't say created it because Mary created it, <laughs> but that I had represented it, and added to it and filled in and done all that work with it in a way that still sounded like her, then I felt completely confident uh -huh. able to finish the book. Um, I should say to explain that though, that the whole idea of the book for me was that it should sound like you had sat down next to her at a dinner party and she was telling you her story. Right. I didn't, so that's why the voice became so important. It's told entirely, <clears throat> the main text, as you know, is told entirely 
as if she's talking to me and the reader uh, at one time. Now I'm in there too, but in this other interesting way um, that, that, you know, was something of a leap, but it turned out to be the way that it was possible to preserve her voice while also allowing readers to understand what was going on. Right. And how did you decide sort of how much to footnote the different chapters? And did you try to be as sparing as possible or as much as possible? Or how did that sort of decision go? The idea was uh, to, uh, A, provide information as much as necessary. And of course, at the beginning, that would be, there would be more information right away that needed to be conveyed because she was going to be naming a lot of people for the first time and readers wouldn't necessarily know who all of them were or would want context on them. But it had always been my plan that the footnote voice, though it would be mine, would grow as the book went on because by the time I really started writing, she was dead and I knew I was going to have to emerge uh, in order to tell the story of the end of her life. Right. Um, which, you know, she didn't, she wasn't there to tell about. So um, for that and, and various reasons, I had this idea that it would start small and grow. And then, I, I don't know, sometimes I just did a chapter and I thought, oh, there's not enough footnotes in there and I would add some. And other times there were too many and I would take them out. Um, I think so, a few readers have, commented here and there that they don't there's they feel there's too many uh so skip them <laughs> <laughs> I, I i listen it's it really is a book by both of us right and, uh i feel like it, i felt that it was important that the reader feel th that there was a representative of them in the text and that's me. So that she's talking to me, but also I'm disagreeing with her sometimes. I'm saying, no, Mary, you know, you, you really don't give yourself enough credit for this. Or Mary, maybe your mother wasn't as bad as you say. You know, um, I think that needed to be there, both because it was happening in our conversations and because readers might feel that way. And without it, might there's a chance they could have sort of lost interest in Mary going on so long without any pushback. Right. And, um, you know, I listened to her all that time and I pushed back a lot. So <laughs> I figured the book needed to also. And she loved it. That was her <laughs> favorite part of, of the, of the, of our conversations. She would always say when I would say something like, Mary, that's, you can't say that that's racist, you know, or, or whatever. And she would say, oh, put that in. Like she wanted to, to make mistakes and then be caught making them, you know, and then correct it. You know, she, she was, didn't, she, she knew she hadn't lived a perfect life. And that was her point that you don't, you can't live a perfect life. And what you can do is keep growing and improving and trying things and listening to people and being inspired by younger people. And she wanted that now. In the end, I didn't really didn't want to include anything racist, so I did. It wasn't it wasn't terrible. It was the typical kind of thing of people of her era, um, but it just wasn't you know something I wanted to do. But there are other occasions where she says things, 
and I do jump on her. And in real life, she loved those. And having gone through this process with her and her life, is there another subject that you would want to either do something similar like this with or just purely write a biography of? No. <laughs> I, first of all, there was truly, I've never met anyone like her. Uh, um, the combination of being at the center of the theatrical world at its Broadway's peak, you know, I mean, truly at the center uh, and of having, you know, had, you know, had her own creditable experience as a composer and, and, and then as, as a mother and, and then later as an author of book. I mean, she just was in the middle of all of this stuff, the combination of that and the brilliance of her interpretation of it, her self-interpretation of it and her expressivity with words, her eagerness to make people laugh and to be made to laugh herself was just the most incredible gift because I had set myself a goal that there should be maybe three times on every page where you would laugh or, or at least chortle or snicker a bit. And I had no trouble filling that quota, you know, just from her. Um, so, you know, leave aside what I added. But um, so the combination of, of those things makes her some, someone, you know, really unapproachable as far as I can think by anyone else as a subject. Uh -huh. and also, you know, I want to write something that's fully mine next. So right. uh, I, I don't want to, I mean, I suppose if during his life Sondheim had asked me to write his biography, well, you know, but, but there, that's happening by someone else and should be great. Um, and uh, no, I can't think of anyone else. Can you? And were there any, I wonder, were there any concerns in terms of how some people might feel about what she said about them in the book in terms of sometime Sheldon Harnick, people like that? Although, of course, sometime ended up having passed away by the time of. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I don't think, I don't think Sheldon Harnick had anything to worry about, except that it, she said they had an affair, um, but she was nice about him. Right. Uh, and and uh, I had discussions with lawyers. Uh, <laughs> we did remove a few things, um, but there was very little that she said was actionable um, because it was her opinion about people. Um, so in that sense, no. But on the other hand, she was adamant that we as little as possible uh you know shrink the strength of her opinions um she didn't want a fake book all the books of this type that she had read in particular her parents books were fakes she said um just you know not only filled with fantasy stories instead of the real story but fantasy opinions like because of just that thing, afraid to say what they believe because they had this friend or that friend. Right. And the combination of her dying and many of her friends having died kind of gave me a lot of freedom to use things that uh, she, well, but no, she never thought to, she said on a few occasions, she said, if so-and-so is dead when the book comes out, you can put that in. <laughs> that was like two or three things. 
Right. Uh, the rest, you know, she really wanted them in there and, uh, you know, l l let the chips fall where they may. I think that's part of why it's such a great read. You you might think that she's being nasty, but you don't doubt that she's telling you what she feels. And right. it's so rare in a biography that you really get that or a memoir. Oh, yeah. And then, so to close out our conversation, I'd love to ask you, um, what kinds of things, going back to the sort of critic side and all that, um, what kinds of things are you, A, looking forward to seeing in this season, but also would like to see sort of in, in years coming up? And... Well, I don't, you know, it's tricky talking about what's coming up because I'll be reviewing a lot of it. Um, you know, uh, for musicals, of course, uh, I spoke earlier about the kinds of musicals I, I'd like to hear. And, you know, the fall gave us a few really great examples of those, at least one in each category that I mentioned. And I would love if we kept hearing more of those. Um, fewer, obviously, uh, commercial products designed only to make money for someone's back catalog of songs or someone's cartoon character or or whatever. I'm mean, just like, I just, you know, it's not that, that shows of that type are never good. It's just that they're almost never good. Um, and I, you think when you watch them, can't we do better than this? I mean, I'm not saying it's poorly done, but isn't, can't, aren't we smarter than this? I, it's just shocking to me that this is the height of people's ambition. I understand that what happens is that really fine artists want to make money, and this is where the money is. But somehow, some artists still do great work, somehow get by, and are doing better, smarter things. And I, I, that's what I want more of. But the other thing, just to, following on what I said earlier, I want to see more and more plays that show me worlds that have not been seen in our theater as much as they should be, whether that's uh, by race or gender or uh, social class, whatever. Um, I, I, I want more and more of them so that these become as inevitable for today's audiences as the Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, Edward Albee, plays were inevitable for their audiences and and then they'll go to them and they'll pay for them and the great ones will rise and the poor ones will sink and we'll be expanding our theater and also our knowledge of our world and doing better as as people in a country that is facing a lot of trouble oh yeah those are all great things and well thank you so much for doing this it's been such an honor to talk to you and Wow. You're a really good interviewer. <laughs> thank you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in and make sure to come back next time. Backstage Babble is approaching the 150th episode mark. And to celebrate, I will be joined by some very exciting guests, including next week, the double EGOT winning songwriter, Bobby Lopez. Bobby Lopez is the composer lyricist of the hit Broadway shows The Book of Mormon and Avenue Q, as well as the movie and musical adaptation of Frozen. In addition, he wrote for the TV shows Central Park, South Park, and Up Here.
You won't want to miss this episode with one of the best musical theater writers of today, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.